Amen. There's a, a writer who has done a lot of teaching over the past many years about how to write. And probably the majority of a crowd this size, the majority of people in the crowd hate to write and hardly ever do it. Uh, there are a few who are under the impression that writing is like the easiest thing you could ever do. You know, writing a story, writing a novel, writing a screenplay, something like that would be the easiest thing you ever do. And then there's some people who have actually tried to write and found out that it's tough, it's hard, it's like warfare in your soul. Uh, I believe it was Hemingway who said, uh, writing actually isn't very hard, you just have to uh, uh, bleed onto the paper. Uh, it's difficult. And there's no formula for writing, but there are ways uh, to go about writing stories that resonate. And so there's a guy named Jerry Cleaver who wrote a book called Immediate Fiction that he intended to help people begin to write fictional stories, short stories, novels, or what have you. And he said this, if you want your characters and your stories to go all the way, you, the author, must do the same. And when he says all the way, you know what he means. That, that movie, when it finishes, you're, you have the sense of satisfaction about what happened. That book, when you read it, you were sad to close it, but you felt fulfilled. You felt like the story just resonated. It was, it was a great story. He says you have to, your, your, your story and your characters have to go all the way, and you must do the same. And he, then he said this, you must push them as far as you can at every chance. So if you're going to write a story and I'm going to care about that story and vice versa, we resonate with stories that push characters, uh, it feels like, too far. It feels like they push characters beyond what they're capable of. Uh, and then, and this is the reason you do it, because then it proves uh, what they're really made of. You find out what that person, what that superhero, is there really super in the hero? Is there really something great in that person? And it can be a story about sports. It can be a story about extraterrestrial life. It can be a story about a man and a woman trying to make a blended family. It can be any kind of story. But you, you find out you've got to push the characters uh, as far as you can push them. And here's why. Because we exist most of the time in what we consider our ordinary world. And yet a good story takes somebody from an ordinary world, and here's how one, one person put it, and pushes that character into the extraordinary world of adventure. And those words sound really cool, don't they? But if you've ever found yourself pushed into the extraordinary world, you know it's scary as anything. And so we live our lives over here in the ordinary world. And our characters, if we're not careful, if we're writing a story, our characters will be in the ordinary world and we can allow them. It's what Jerome Kern called a bathtub story. Because he said, if you write a bathtub story, it's a story in which your main character, your protagonist, never really escapes the confines of a small area or a small mindset. And they never actually do anything. And Kern said this, he said, inaction is caused by a lack of imagination. We're scared in our lives. We're scared 
in our stories uh, to, to push the character because we lack imagination. Or maybe we could say it this way, since faith is the substance of things hoped for, because we lack faith. But if you're going to have a good story, you've got to somehow get the character from the ordinary world into the extraordinary world, and there's a way to do that. Thankfully, I figured it out a long time ago, and it's carried down over generations. And what we've come to call it is that, that, that thing that happens to get you from here to there is called the inciting incident. And here's how uh, a couple of people have explained the inciting incident. One person said the inciting incident radically upsets the balance of forces in the protagonist's life. It's also known as raising the stakes. All of a sudden, there's, there's something that happens and everything's unsettled. Somebody else put it this way. The inciting incident must upset the status quo of the protagonist and jolt his life from its existing pattern so that chaos invades the character's universe. That sounds cool, doesn't it? All you need to do to get the person from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world of adventure is just introduce complete chaos to their life. That's all. And as crazy as that sounds, like there's probably less than, I'm going to say 10%, it's probably more like 2%, that you are thinking right now, bring it on. Bring on the chaos. I love to prove myself under tension and pressure. The majority of us are like, That's great for them, but not for me. Somebody tells a story and you love it because it's filled with tension. It's filled with what happened. You know, somebody comes back from a cruise and all he did was lay around and eat. You don't want to hear that story. (laughs) But if somebody comes back from a cruise and they went on an excursion and got chased by ancient Mayan, uh, you want to hear that story, right? And they almost missed the boat. And they saw somebody get eaten by a shark. You want to hear all of that. But you don't want that in your life, right? But you love that. It's, it's so compelling. And we love it for other people. And we, we've, we've adapted ourselves uh, to a life of ease and this ordinary world uh, that when an exciting incident finally does happen, every once in a while we can, as the, as the central character, we can push ourselves into the world. But typically that's not how it happens. Typically, how many knows is true? You got to be pushed. You ain't pushing yourself. You ain't sliding over there. You have to be pushed. And sometimes it's a person that pushes you. You ever had a friend that just wouldn't stop pushing, wouldn't stop pressing? Sometimes it's not a person. Sometimes it's a call from the doctor. Sometimes it's. The boss asking for you to stop by at 4.30. Sometimes uh, it's something that's thrust on us and it pushes us. But the inciting incident throws, throws us into this, this journey toward the extraordinary world of adventure. And most of us are conditioned ourselves to not like that But the fact of the matter is, and I learned this a while back when I started reading about how stories work and how to write, uh, there's only one thing that moves a story forward. 
And that's conflict. And that's the C word that we don't like. But you open up Scripture. You're not even four minutes in until conflict shows up. Because we've got to move the story forward. We have to get there. So I want us to, I want us to look today. Robert Alter said this, said the Bible wants to draw me out of myself using the medium of narrative to transform my sense of the world and alert me to spiritual realities and moral imperatives I might have misconceived or not conceived of at all. So there's something that Scripture does when we read. And I want, I want you to go back through this story with me in Acts 9. And I want you to see if maybe it's calling you a little bit beyond where you're used to being. And notice that this isn't, this isn't, this isn't new when we get to Acts, right? God's been pushing people for a long time. Now I know your response to that might be, no, Jesus is a gentleman. He stands and knocks and he waits for me to open. But that's not exactly scriptural. He does stand and knock at the end. But there's a lot of times, you just open it up and start reading, there's a lot of times where God comes and He pushes. Abram, Abram is hanging out, he's rich, he's got everything he wants except for one thing, a son. And God comes to him and God doesn't promise him a son, He promises him that I'll take you somewhere and that'll involve what you want. But He pushes him, gentle push, but He pushes him. And Abram goes. Moses on the backside of the desert. He's been tending sheep for half his life. And he's not pushed by a person. It's not his wife. It's not his kids. It's not his father-in-law. Moses is pushed by a bush. (laughs) Right? A bush that talks. A bush that's on fire. Moses, you got to go back. And Moses pushes back, right? Ah, them days are over. I don't think that'll go so well, God. Push. I'm going to push you. The disciples are hanging out with Jesus on the mount after He's resurrected and He's led them up the mount. And uh, He says, um, just a few days from now, you'll receive power, so I need you to go to Jerusalem and wait till you receive power. And then he's taken up. And the disciples are living in their ordinary world that was messed up. And then it was all good again because Jesus was alive again. And now he has ascended. And look in Acts chapter 1. They stand there and they just stare into the heavens. Like, what, what, what? And it takes an angel to come alongside and said, what are you staring at? Go to Jerusalem and wait. And so they get to Jerusalem and they spend some days waiting and finally the power that Jesus had promised arrives. But remember what Jesus told them. He said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and the disciples were cool with that because Jerusalem was a capital city of the Jewish race. So we're cool with Jerusalem. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Judea. And they're cool with that too because, uh, still talking Jewish here, 
and Samaria, and that's pushing it. Because the Samaritans were intermarried, intermixed, uh, interreligious. Uh, they had their own views on how to worship. There were a lot of things wrong with Samaritans. And Jesus didn't stop there. He said, and the ends of the earth. So how, how are they going to get? They're, they're in Jerusalem. The power falls. This is a mighty, a mighty day. Peter stands up and preaches. 3,000 people are added to the faith. This feels good. I think, we'll, I think we'll stay here. We'll stay right here where we're comfortable. Temple Street, this has been good for us for a long time. And then something happens and you get pushed. What, it hap- what, what happens for the disciples is it's persecution that comes in the form of a lot of chats with the religious leaders and then some beatings. And when things don't slow down and when things don't stop, uh, Stephen gets really bold and starts preaching and they don't like it at all. And they finally, they jump the shark and it's over. And they stone Stephen to death. And we find out there's a guy named Saul that came from Tarsus. A zealot of all zealots. Who's overseeing that that martyrdom. And uh, they're being pushed. And it's only then that when you get to chapter 8. That they're outside of Jerusalem and Judea. It takes uh, however many months that is. uh, That's recorded there. It takes them that many months to realize. Oh, Jesus really meant what he was saying. We are going to have to testify beyond the place where we're comfortable. And it's not even an apostle. It's not John. It's not Peter. It's not James. Uh, It's a guy named Philip that shows up in Samaria and starts testing the waters. And that's the point where things are really getting out of control. This isn't one of the apostles. Uh, This is a guy named Philip. They laid hands on him and uh, he's really just known as an evangelist. Uh, And so he's traveling and he's spreading good news in Samaria. But hey, why not? Because back there in Jerusalem is where all this persecution is coming from. So we'll try it out here in Samaria. What do you know? Bam! people believe they're baptized, they're healed. There's amazing things happening so much so that Peter and John are, well, they're sent down to make sure this is legitimate. Is this really Is this really what God said was supposed to happen? And they get there, and sure enough, they can't deny it, so they lay hands on the people and bless them. And Samaritans, uh, thumbs up to the Samaritans. They turn around to give a high five to Philip, and he's not there. Philip's been caught up. I don't know what that means, uh, but I've always imagined it was uh, time travel from, uh, from the place in Samaria where he was preaching to a road going to Ethiopia. And there's an Ethiopian going there, and now uh, all bets are off. At least Samaritans kind of had a little bit of Jew in their blood. This Ethiopian had none. He's a convert to the religion, but he is not the race. And Philip gets the call from God to preach to him, and they have a one-on-one little Bible study in the chariot. Philip baptizes him. And then Philip's gone again. And all of a sudden, as you're reading through Acts, you realize this is really, this is really going to work. God's really going to use people. But Saul doesn't like it. 
And Saul's already on his way to Damascus, and that's how chapter 9 opens up. We aren't going to focus on that story. Like I said, you'll hear about that next week. But, but, realize Saul's already been pushed. When we get to our story, starting with verse 10, Saul's already been pushed. He's already, the inciting incident for him has already happened. But now there's something else God needs to happen. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 10, we read now that there was a disciple. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, this is good news for us because we have no indication anywhere that Ananias was an apostle. We have no indication that that, that he was ever laid hands on by the apostles. We have no indication that he was any kind of special anything except... He had committed his life to Jesus and was a follower of Jesus. Paul later will say when he retells the story that this was a devout man well spoken of. So it's good. He was at church every Sunday, served on the team. This guy had it going on. So he's good. But but he's not special, right? He doesn't have this special call to ministry and he doesn't hasn't been ordained by 45 organizations. This is just a, a Jesus follower. And he's somebody who wants to do something for God. He just wants to be a part of the mission. And so he spends his days trying to help people out, serving in whatever capacity he can. And he prays. He likes to pray. And one day he's at prayer and God shows up in his prayers. Don't you hate it when that happens? Right? I was, God, I just 30 minutes this morning. I was going to read my scriptures. I was going to pray, and then I was going to get on my way. And you had to show up, and I can't do my hair, and my shirt's wrinkled mess because I can't be late for work. But has God ever just shown up in a way? And he did that to Ananias. Ananias is praying, and God shows up. And it says, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And you know I was joking. You don't really hate it. We're ready, right? We're ready like Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. He knows, right? He knows the scripture. God shows up in Genesis 22 to Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. God shows up to uh, talk to Samuel. In 1 Samuel, he's a young kid. But once he figures out what's going on, the priest gives him instruction. He goes back. God says, Samuel. And Samuel says, Here I am. So God comes to Ananias and says, Ananias. And Ananias is like, yes, here I am. I've been waiting all my life for this. When I was growing up, sang a song called, If You Can Use Anything, Lord, You Can Use Me. And that's what Ananias is saying. Here I am. And this is the inciting incident. You know, you know, right? God doesn't show up and say, Ananias, hi. Something's coming. You know it. And the Lord said to him, rise. And Ananias is like, oh, yeah. This is going to be good. I'm ready, God. What, 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 do you, what would you have me to do? And God says, 
Go to the street called Straight. Straight Street. Know exactly where it is. Walk up and down it several times a day. God, I got this. What do you want me to do? He says, wait, at the house of Judas. Yes, Noam, we've been friends for a long time. What's going on in his house? I'm ready for this. He says, uh, look for a man of Tarsus. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Know some people from Tarsus? It's all right. Good. And then God says, named Saul. And he says, ah. God continues and says, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, think back with me. You remember when the angel showed up to Mary and said, Blessed are you, you're highly favored, and you're going to have a baby, and this baby will be the Messiah, and he will save his people from their sins. Quite an announcement, and you remember how Mary responds? Let's go back to that first part. You said I'm going to have a baby. That's kind of what Ananias is doing here. Ananias... I want you to go down to Straight Street to Judas' house and there's a man from Tarsus named Saul. And, and it doesn't, whatever else you're saying, God, doesn't matter because let's stop right there. You want me to do what? Ananias needs to talk this over with God and because Ananias is living in his ordinary world, remember? This there's certain things that are safe on our list of following Jesus, right? Push me, push me out of my comfort zone, but not very far. And Ananias is being, wait, let's just slow this down, God. And I get the feeling that Ananias is saying, God, somehow you haven't gotten the latest intel on this guy. I'm not sure you know who this guy is. We're talking about a guy, and read it there. He says, uh, this, this guy, in verse uh, 13, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He has come here not to be converted, but to arrest those uh, who are preaching the message of Jesus uh, that's why he's in town, God. And somehow, I don't know if Michael got held up and didn't get the information to you, uh, but uh, there's a problem here, God. You don't realize how bad this man is. And Ananias speaks back to God. He argues with God out of something we're all familiar with. In fact, you heard Scott say it when we started this series seven weeks ago. He said, fear is the number one reason that people... Refuse to engage in God's mission. Well, what's Ananias afraid of? Well, first of all, it's pretty clear. I think fear, fear here, we could say, has three different forms. The first form of fear is uh, there could be really dire consequences to this God. He's here. He's already overseen the murder of Stephen. Uh, this could get really hairy really fast, and I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. That level of fear, I think we can all understand. There's another level of fear. You ever, you ever been afraid that something that you felt like God wanted you to do, that if you stepped out and did it, it wouldn't work? I want you to do this, Ananias. And there's a fear that's like, what if that doesn't work? 
What's this going to look like if it doesn't work? There's a third level of fear. One we don't think about all, all that often, but I call it the Jonah conundrum. And it's not that you're afraid that it won't work. It's that you're afraid that it will work. Remember how Jonah sat down under the tree and said, God, I knew, I knew you were going to do that. And those people are too horrible. They're too evil to be saved. And I knew if I obeyed you, that it would work. How many times have we paused from doing something God wanted us to do because we were afraid that it was going to work out? And we were out of control of what the repercussions of that was. I don't know exactly what's going through his mind, but Ananias is like, God, I don't really think this is a good idea. But if he'd only listened, and this is what I wanted, to what Ananias didn't hear is what I want us to focus on today. Look what God said. He said, he has seen, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision, the same way that I'm talking to you, Ananias, Saul has had a vision, and he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, I know it's still morning time, so that's why you're not jumping up and down, but that's exciting right there. And let me tell you why. Ananias is still over here in his ordinary world, but Saul has already seen a vision where a man named Ananias comes in and lays hands on him for him to receive his sight back. That's how much God believes in this guy Ananias. Now, God didn't argue with him, but I imagine an argument would have gone something like this. Hey, Ananias, I really need you to do this. We lost a guy named Ananias a few chapters back who was acting a little bit different than you. So I'm kind of running out of Ananiases. And I've already given Saul the vision that this guy named Ananias, so would you come on, because I really need your help with this one. God believes in you so much that He already has prepared. In fact, there's a verse in Ephesians, if we can put it up on the screen, there's a verse in Ephesians that says, We are His workmanship, like His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're okay with that, but which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here's what I think that that means. God has already prepared works for you to do because... uh, He didn't just want you here on this earth, live 70 years or so, and then be gone. He wants you to do things to forward His kingdom, to push, to bring His kingdom to come. He he wants you to do things in His name. And so, He's already prepared the works. That's the easy part. And here's where I want us to really bring it down. God's already prepared the works for you. And now He's committed to spending as much time as it takes to prepare you for the works. Let me say that again. God's already prepared the works for you. And now He's busy preparing you for the work. Ananias, if you... It's already done. You just have to do it. And that's how much God believes 
and wants to use us. It's, it's as if God's saying, Ananias, I'm your number one fan. I believe in you right now more than you believe in yourself and you can accomplish this. And I'm pushing you out of your ordinary world, but if you only realized what that extraordinary world of adventure is like, I'm with you all the time, all the way. And so God doesn't argue, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go. We're not going to argue about this. I just need you to go. Because Saul is a chosen instrument. Elsewhere in Luke and Acts, it's a vessel. So literally, he says, Saul is a vessel of election. I have picked him and he is the perfect vessel for me to fill and pour out to others. He says, uh, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then verse 17 says, so Ananias went. We missed the first part of it there, but it says, so Ananias departed. He went. And now this is, this is something that the Bible doesn't really say how he went. So if you allow me to do the CTO version, I want to, I want to show you a map of, uh, of what was going on here. So if we can see the first map. All right, this is Straight Street right here. This is where he needed to go. It's at the, the corner of Straight and Park is where Judas's house was. And uh, Ananias lived on the corner of Carroll and Van Houten. And y'all can see, I plugged it in. Y'all can see that it's really not that big a deal. You just shoot down Carroll to Park. You go over Park until you get to Straight. And it's right there at the corner. A, a decent walk... Point four miles, maybe eight minutes. This is this is this is pretty easy. All right. I'm not sure what Ananias did, but I want to show you what Chris has done. Let's see the next map. All right. Chris leaves corner of Carol and Van Houten and he travels over. He remembers he needs to pick up his book that's on hold from the library. So he goes by the library and then he comes down, he's got to visit with a friend and, and see how their trip was to Mexico. And so they visit for a little while. Then he comes over, he's got another couple stops he needs to make before he stops and gets a pastry. And so he gets a pastry there and then he travels down and he goes up because he remembers there's a garage where he needs to check on the state of his car. And then he goes over and he ends up at Dunkin' Donuts for some coffee. And you laugh, right? But... I'm like, that's that's me. A total trip of 20 minutes, and here's why I do that. Here's why I take an eight-minute something from God and turn it into 20 minutes. It's it's really good reason. God told Abraham, go and sacrifice your son on the mountain. And Abraham, Abraham goes out, he and Isaac and the servants, and then they leave the servants at the bottom, and they go up the mountain and... And he gets there and he's ready to do the work. And God says, no, not really. So what Chris wants to do is give God just enough time <laughs> to show up and say, now I know, Chris. Now I know you were willing. And that's why it took me 30 minutes at Dunkin Donuts to drink my coffee. 
And I still hadn't heard anything. And I finally showed up at, at Straight Street. You know that it's true that that journey right there, for some people, is years, not minutes. That God has something for them to do. And maybe it's somebody in this room, but it's been years that you've been diverting because you're afraid, you're not sure, you don't feel like you're good enough. I want to ask you today, what would it take for you just to believe that God is your number one fan and He's already prepared works for you and everything that you're going through right now and all of the wrestling in your mind and in your soul is just about getting you ready to do it. So do it. It turned out pretty good for Ananias. He entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to me or to you on the road by which you came, has sent me. So Ananias thoroughly identifies himself with the mission now. I'm here. I'm all in. Let's do this thing. He has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And things turned out all right. So let's bring it home. You say, that's not me. I'm, I'm not... I'm not special like that. Ananias was devout. And you know what the very basic, the very basic expression of devout is? Keep showing up. So I want to challenge you today, if you're not in the habit of showing up to engage in worship on Sundays, start showing up as often as you can. Because there's something about getting together with a community of people. In fact, Hebrews challenges us to spur one another on, to stir one another toward good works. And we're getting good at that around here. We're talking about doing things like second sight and reaching our community for Jesus. Keep showing up. But here's where the really profound stuff comes in. All right, I built up to this moment, so you might need to have your pen ready. All right? The best thing you can take from this message is this. Are you ready? Do stuff. Do stuff. It might not always work. But we can't do it all. Full-time staff can't do it all. Part-time staff can't do it all. Volunteers can't do it all. There's too much to be done. So you need to do stuff. But not just anything. It's not that easy, you know. So do stuff for Jesus. Do stuff in the name of Jesus. Uh, Listen for the voice of God. Listen and wait for Him to show up. uh, And then do stuff for Him, carrying the name of Jesus uh, everywhere you go around the community. Do stuff for Jesus and... Don't just hold it in, but here's the third part. Uh, with others. Do stuff for, for Jesus with others as often as you can. Get somebody else to help you do the stuff that you're doing for Jesus. John Maxwell says, never do ministry alone. Never go out on your own if you, have, if you can take your kids with you. Do it. If you've got a service opportunity, you can take your life group with you. Do it. Do stuff for Jesus with others uh, every day. 
as often as you can, do what God is calling you to do. And here's the thing. You're afraid of making mistakes. Uh, Have you read Scripture? Sometimes that's who God does His best work through, is people that are just willing to, ah, mess that one up, God. He's like, all right, we got that behind us. Let's go forward. That's you. That's me. Do stuff for Jesus with others every day. And if we can do that, then I think we have caught a little bit of what Ananias was about. At first, he's like, ah. And then he's waiting. Maybe he's going to call me back. Nope. But it worked. It worked. And if you do stuff for Jesus with others every day, I'm telling you, it will work. And that's what we're trying to get across to you in Risk Series. That's what we're going... It sounds crazy to think of the things that are going to happen over the next six to eight months around here. But we believe that if we do stuff in the name of Jesus and involve everybody that He sent to us, that it will work. And where I come from, at least a few people would have said amen.